love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. You're really giddy. Are you capable of uh, recording an episode? I think so. Just before I turned the microphones on, Kat found out that comedian Maria Bamford uh, retweeted one of her posts. Yeah. She's uh, you, she's pretty much your best friend. Yeah, you like to say that. Well, because she has retweeted you a number of times over the years. Um, No, she's only retweeted me once, but she has liked my tweets okay, on yeah. multiple occasions. Yes, and that's always fun. It's uh, gross how much it means to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, Maria Bamford is just a wonderful, hilarious comedian um but the thing that impresses me the most about this person is how she has dealt with uh mental health issues in her life in such a healthy way Mm. she's a great example for those of us who struggle with these types of things yeah it's true and if you are not familiar with maria bamford might we suggest checking her out yeah she has lots of stand-up stuff uh on uh, on the youtubes and certainly netflix and things also she had a, a two-season uh series called lady dynamite mm. which was wonderful i loved it it's on netflix so check it out Cat's best friend, <laughs> Maria Bamford. I wish. Mm. Also, she's got like a twenty-year-old pug named Betty. So, well, come on. As if, as if, just her charming nature was was not enough. No, she has a pug named Betty. Okay, I'm sorry. You were going to talk about something else. Yeah, well, I was going to talk about a, a a subject that I have now. I'm reluctant to do it because you're in such a good mood. You're not going to like this. Oh no. You're not going to like this at all. Is it dark? Well, it's not dark in the sense that it's in any way uh, violent or physically disgusting. Okay. It's just well, I'll just say what it is. I came across a couple of books, actually three or four of them, that uh, I thought were hilarious. One was by Edward Podolsky from 1943. It's called How to Be a Good Wife. And then Reverend Alfred Henry Tyrer in 1951 wrote 
Sex Satisfaction and Happy Marriage. B.G. Jeffries wrote in a wrote a book called Searchlights on Health: The Science of Eugenics. Oh, jeez. Uh, Dr. William Joseph Robinson wrote in 1922, Married Life and Happiness. And uh, before that, in 1917, he wrote a book called Women, Her Sex and Love Life. And so this is really kind of a tutorial by a bunch of dudes on how to be a good wife. Oh, man. You're going to love this. Here's one of the first rules of thumb. And actually, that's probably not a good phrase to use because what that meant was... The size of the stick that you could use to hit your wife with. Shouldn't be larger than one's thumb. Yeah. But the first rule is for women... And most of the sources that I cited were cited in the 1950s. These came from magazine articles and things about how, you know, women should should be. The number one thing is don't talk to your husband when he gets home. From Poldalski's 1943 book, Sex Today in Wedded Life, he writes, quote, Don't bother your husband with petty troubles and complaints when he comes home from work. Just be a good listener. Let him tell you his troubles. Yours will seem trivial in comparison. Remember, your most important job is to build up and maintain his ego, which gets bruised plenty in business. Morale is a woman's business. Let him relax before dinner. Discuss family problems after the inner man has been satisfied. Comments, Katrina? I just feel like if my man behaved like these men, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to talk to him anyway. So no problem. <laughs> in 1951, his book, Sex Satisfaction and Happy Marriage, Reverend Alfred Henry Tyrer, he added to that. He said, do not ask for things. This is called, quote, nagging. Quote, I verily believe that the happiness of homes is destroyed more frequently by the habit of nagging than by any other one. A man may stand for that sort of thing, nagging, for a long time, but the chances are against his standing it permanently. If he needs peace to make life bearable, he will have to look for it somewhere else than his own home, and it is quite likely that he will look. So don't nag your man because that's a license for him to go screw around. But the first thing that he said was don't ask for things. Like, what does that, what does that mean? Don't nag about what? Anything, really. Just don't be a nag. Oh, that would just play back to, like, don't speak to him. Well, I guess so. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Also, have his freaking dinner ready. And it better be good. The good Reverend Tyra writes, quote, A social service meeting, an afternoon tea, a matinee, a whatnot, is no excuse for there being no dinner ready when your husband comes home from a hard day's work. Housekeeping accomplishments and cooking ability are, of course, positive essentials in any true home, and every wife should take a reasonable pride in her skill. Happiness does not flourish in an atmosphere of dyspepsia. Thoughts, Katrina? (laughs) (laughs) So what you want is an indentured servant. Like, that's... Yeah, 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 basically. Dr. Robinson, from his 1922 book, Married Life and Happiness, uh, expanded on that. He he said, bad cooking is responsible for dyspepsia. Dyspepsia is responsible for grouchiness and irritability. Grouchiness and irritability lead to quarrels and squabbles. And bad cooking, which is the usual thing in the average American home, has been responsible as much as any other factor for driving the husband to the saloon and other places. Can you imagine? Like, my wife's not a good cook, therefore I am an alcoholic? When, when Come she, on. When she 
does. Wait, here's my question. So if she's not a good cook and she needs a cookbook and she asks you for it, is that nagging or? Yeah, that's a great question. It seems like a vicious cycle working against the female in this situation. He goes on to say when, when she does cook, she should cook and not be, as somebody said, quote, a mere can opener. Right. Yes. Yeah. So make him food from scratch. It's important yes. that you work more. Yeah. Right. No, it is. It is. So basically what the good reverend is saying here is that if you don't cook a good meal for your husband every day, he will become a cephalitic alcoholic. Right. Yes, of course. He has a metaphor for you in one of his books. <sighs> Quote, she remembered his choice of meat and was careful to get an extra fine cut. Her best cutlery and dishes and finest linen were all in evidence. And a little colorful decoration has been tastefully displayed. And as he comes into the house, she greets him with a smile of welcome and a touch of manifest love. So how did she get that fine china and the, well, the dishcloths? He and, bought it for her because, you know. But did she have to ask for them? Uh, I think that would have been the responsibility of the man. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, let's move on to sex. I hate this so much. <laughs> you have to let the husband dictate when it's time to get busy. I feel like I needed, I needed a trigger warning for this because this makes me so irate. Don't be a sexual vampire or you will drive your husband to his grave. Quote, just as the vampire sucks the blood of its victims in their sleep while they are alive, so does a woman vampire suck the life and exhaust of the vitality of her male partner or, quote, victim. And then what you want? It is to be borne in mind, it is particularly older girls, girls between 30 and 50, Oof. who are apt to be unreasonable in their demands when they get married. But no age is exempt. Sexual vampires may be found among girls of 20 as well as women 60 and older. So don't don't force yourself on the man, you know? Uh, but also keep in mind that too little sex is not good either. Dr. Robinson says this, quote, if you are one of those frigid or sexually anesthetic women, don't be in a hurry to inform your husband about it. To the man, it makes no difference in his pleasurableness of the Are you act. fucking kidding me? <laughs> I, it makes no difference to him whether or not you wanted to do it. Right. Whether, <clears throat> whether you are frigid or not, unless he knows that you are frigid. And he won't know unless you tell him. And what he doesn't know won't hurt him. Oh Heed God. this advice. It has saved thousands of women from trouble. Dr. Robinson. Everybody. Does trouble not include being sexually assaulted in your own home? Because that's what it sounds like to me. I think, I think he's, he's talking more about um, even if you don't like it, uh, you need to not let him know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Mm. So just l allow yourself to be coerced into it. Gross. I think, yeah, basically. Dr. Robinson went on to write from his book, Women, Her Sex and Love Life. This may be considered too delicate or trifling a subject to discuss in an important sex book, but nothing is too delicate or too trifling that concerns human happiness. And will, and you will believe me if I tell you that nice underwear and dainty lingerie plays a very important role in marital life. If anything in a woman's toilet should be immaculately fresh and clean, I emphasize her underwear. Silk and lace and delicate and delicate fabrics should be preferred if they can be afforded and attention should be paid to the color as a rule a delicate pink is the color that most men prefer i have not found that to be true i like camo 
No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the first thing I could think that was a polar opposite of pink. In his second book, Married Life and Happiness, he elaborates a little bit on this. Oh, good. That the underwear should be spotlessly clean goes without saying... <laughs> But every woman should wear the best quality underwear right, that she can afford. Right, because women are the ones who have a problem with skid marks. It's, <laughs> it's typically us who really don't wash their assholes. And the color should be preferably pink and lacy with ruffles. And I'm sorry to say, add to the attractiveness of underwear. I will say that, I mean, there is some truth to that. Like, I prefer a pink lacy thong. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, you look great in lace. Thank you. You're welcome. But in the case of an occasional lapse on the part of the husband, there is a bit of advice that that might prove acceptable. And my advice would be forgive and forget. Or still better, make believe that you know nothing. An occasional lapse from the straight path does not mean that he has ceased to love you. He may love you as much. He may love you a good deal more. So if you've got skid marks, it's his license to go out and, uh, you know, mess around. B.G. Jeffries, in his book, Searchlights on Health, The Science of Eugenics, and we all know how important the science of eugenics has become. The number one rule, revere your husband. He sustains, by God's order, a position of dignity as head of the family and the head of the woman. Any breaking down of this order indicates a mistake in the union or a digression from duty. Katrina Walls with an opposing viewpoint. Oh, that's just dumb. And there you have it. How to be a good wife through the lens of 1950s idiots. It's not that you cannot fill these roles as a, as a woman. I think it's lovely if this is the life you choose. But for a dude to write a book and say this is how you need to behave, yeah. that's where it grosses me out. Right. Well, and, and they were all dudes. And I think that's the, the mistake that a lot of people run into in the thought process about feminism is that you, you cannot be that housewife, that you can't be greeting your husband at the door with dinner on the table. Of course you can be. That's your choice. And the choice is where feminism comes in. It's about equality and the opportunity to choose how you live your life. I um, hated that. <laughs> yeah. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. We're coming into a very exciting time in the history of space exploration. NASA says it hopes to launch humans to Mars in the next decade or the early 2040s at the latest. They say the first human to set foot on the red planet could be a woman. That's according to former NASA chief Jim Bridenstine. But before that can happen, NASA is in the process of solving problems to some of the biggest challenges facing the first humans to reach Mars. For example, it's believed that because of the lack of gravity, during the several months that it would take for a human being to get to Mars, the shape of their eyeballs might change, causing all sorts of problems. Scientists speculate that that would be because the fluids in your head wouldn't be able to drain properly. And this, of course, would affect one's vision. And the last thing you want if you're the first person on Mars is to be suffering from vision problems. Tara sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. I'm binge listening to The Box of Oddities during this Thanksgiving break. The most recent episode I listened to was Box 116 with the story of the well-preserved body of Peter Winstrup. I wanted to see pictures of the body, so I googled his name. You may recall he was the guy that was uh, buried in the church, and they found a mummified fetus. Oh, yeah. Under his feet, and nobody knew what that was all about, and thought maybe that he was somehow involved in a out-of-wedlock birth. or yeah, Speculation was running wild. Mm. At the time you recorded... You discussed the fetus that was found under his feet. At that time, the results of DNA analysis had not been announced. The DNA analysis of the fetus has now been completed. Researchers believe that it was his grandson. Oh. I apologize if a ton of people have already told you about this. We love listening to Box of Oddities. I'm a patron. Thanks, Tara. And we love your updates. Thanks. Brian sent us a message. I was listening to box 488 about the search for the Thule eaters. I remembered I had photographed what is supposed to be the mummified body of one, complete with a history placard. The Thule eaters were the alleged giant red-headed cannibals. That's right. We got a lot of feedback about your story and specifically my skepticism. <laughs> this was displayed at an oddity vendor's room during a horror film convention, along with a skeleton for sale and a face in a jar, among other weirdness. Thought you might enjoy the photo. Sorry for the poor quality. By the way, Lovelock is a very desolate little town. This might be the only claim to fame that they have, and there is a photo included, and it's, uh, it's pretty cool looking. Also, we got uh, several messages saying, stop pronouncing Nevada, Nevada. It's Nevada. Sorry about that. We hate it when people call our hometown Bangor, Maine, Bangor. So we, we feel for you. I just want to remind everyone, I went to school with a Du Bois and a Geminis, and we went to school near Calis. Right. So I cannot be expected to pronounce things the way you think they should be pronounced. Yeah. Calis, Maine, not Calais. And uh, du, Dubus, that's Dubois, right? Du Bois. I've heard it both ways. And Geminis. As in Jimenez? Yes. Okay. But yes, no, I'll try to be better. 
Dave Rota, Scott and Jethro chatting on Messenger to a friend of mine while listening to Box of Oddities episode 489 in the background. My friend had just told me about the fact that she had taken some boudoir photos to give her husband and had also showed them to her friend after her friend swore to keep them private. But her friend then showed them to her husband. It didn't go well. However, just as my friend explained this to me, Kat comes over my headphones and says, quote, I would love to see those photos. And Jethro <laughs> says, yes, please send them along. <laughs> I'll admit I wasn't listening to you guys that closely because of what I was reading, but the comments you made fell right in line with what my friend and I were texting about. I don't know if it qualifies as a boo effect, but it freaked me out a little bit. I had to rewind to see what you were talking about. It was the red-haired giants in the cave. Got it. Keep flying your freak flag, Dave. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We just love this time of year, the lights, songs, and decorations, the food, the drink, oh, the drink. Saying something inappropriate to a co-worker after a few too many. Getting fired because of it. Telling your damned spouse you're out of work. Again. We just love this time of year. This is the Box of Oddities. All right, girls, your time to tell a story and you need to get on it because dinner's almost ready. I love it when you make me dinner. I do sometimes, actually. Yeah. yeah. You make a rad pad thai. Thank you. Yeah. What you got? Beneath its atmosphere, Neptune and Uranus have Uranus, a- you mean? No. <laughs> you know, I heard I heard that there were rings around Uranus. But that was wrong. It was Neptune. <laughs> uh, there's a mantle made up of water, ammonia, and methane ices. 
Mantles are under a colossal amount of pressure where the temperature ranges between 1727 degrees Celsius and 4727 degrees Celsius. That's between 3000 and 8000 degrees Fahrenheit. That doesn't make any sense. It's so far away. Is it because there's no atmosphere? It's because of the pressure. Oh. According to Nature and Physics, Neptune and <clears throat> Uranus are estimated to be made up of 10% carbon. And it's under these extreme conditions that the methane breaks up into its core components, producing pure carbon, which, as we talked about, that immense pressure then forms diamonds. Scientists have long speculated that the extreme pressures in this region might split those molecules into atoms of hydrogen and carbon, the latter of which then crystallized to form diamonds. And these diamonds were thought to sink like rain through the ocean until they hit a solid core. So it rains diamonds on Uranus? Yup. Yeah, whatever you're into. But no one could prove that this is really how things worked until a study published in 2017 in the Journal of Nature Astrophysics. Researchers said that they were able to produce this diamond rain using a fancy plastic and high-powered lasers. That's incredible. Dominic Krauss, a physicist at the Helmholtz Dresden Rosendorf Research Center in Germany, told the magazine Cosmos, when I saw the results of this latest experiment, it was one of the best moments of my scientific career. I can imagine. Which I imagine uh, sounded something like this. Holy crap, Uranus is full of diamonds. <laughs> Krauss and his colleagues used two types of lasers, one optical and one x-ray, to produce shock waves. And these waves were then driven through a block of polystyrene, type of plastic composed of hydrogen and carbon, just like the oceans on the two planets. The first, smaller, slower wave is overtaken by the stronger second wave, Krauss explained in the news release. The combination of the two waves squeezed the plastic to 150 gigapascals of pressure. I'm assuming that's a lot? It is. It's more than what exists at the bottom of the Earth's mantle. Oh. And it's heated to 8,500 degrees. The high pressure, coupled with the intense heat, caused the diamonds to melt, forming diamond oceans toward the base of the mantle. Wait, diamond oceans? Yes. So liquid diamonds. That's incredible. Research was conducted by taking detailed measurements of what the melting point of diamonds are. And when a diamond is melted, it behaves like water during freezing and melting, with solid forms floating atop the liquid forms. So diamond, obviously, a very hard material, and it makes it really difficult to melt. And so measuring the melting point of a diamond is super difficult, especially because you have to be heating it at such a very high temperature. And when you do that, the diamond can turn to graphite, which I didn't know that's how graphite was made, by the way. So since it's the graphite and not the diamond that turns to a liquid, scientists were faced with the problem of melting the diamond without it turning to graphite. And they got around this problem by exposing the diamond to extremely high pressures by blasting it with lasers. Who comes up with this shit? I was just thinking, you know, how do you know these things? I don't know. I mean, besides the fact that clearly, you know, they're highly educated individuals, but... 
I had no idea you could create that sort of pressure mm. using lasers. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense. I it's... don't even understand how zippers work. <laughs> That's because you don't spend enough time sewing my clothing for me. <laughs> So the lasers recreate the extreme pressure of the planets. And they eventually found that the diamond behaves like water during the freezing and melting. And that is what would, in theory and in research, create these diamond oceans. So the existence of diamond oceans has been hypothesized through experiments at the Livermore National Laboratory, where scientists recreated these extreme conditions, the ice the ice giant mantles with lasers melting diamonds into their liquid form, so on and so forth. A large ocean of liquid diamond could deflect or tilt the magnetic field out of alignment with the rotation of a planet. And that would actually explain why both of these planets have a magnetic pole offset from their axis. So there is evidence to support that this is the case. Now, with this new information about how the researchers mimicked the extreme temperatures and pressures found deep inside the ice giants, and using a new material that closely resembles the chemical makeup of Neptune and Uranus, scientists from the Department of Energy's SLAC, National Accelerator Laboratory, and their colleagues found that the presence of oxygen makes diamond formation more likely. And this new study provides a more complete picture of how diamond rain forms on other planets and therefore how diamond oceans can exist. And a lot of this has to do with the chemical makeup of the gas in Uranus. And Neptune, yes. And Neptune. But for Earth, it could lead to a new way of fabricating nanodiamonds. Which would be very helpful in leaps forward with uh, technology. Yeah. The researchers predict that diamonds on Neptune and Uranus would become much larger than the, nano, than the nanodiamonds that we're producing here in these experiments. Mm-hmm. Maybe a million carats in weight. Over thousands of years, the diamonds might slowly sink into the planet's ice layers and assemble into a thick layer of diamonds around the solid planetary core. So the core could be covered in diamond. That core of diamonds could then be covered in a diamond ocean while it's raining diamonds. (laughs) Shine on, you crazy diamond. (laughs) I got my information from fizz.org, The Washington Post, and Listverse. Of course, when you're telling me the story, immediately my mind went to, how can I get to Uranus? <laughs> yeah, you're always wondering that. And uh, get some of those diamonds and bring them back <laughs> to uh, to Earth. What do you think those would be worth? Now, if you brought too many of them back, of course, yeah, you know, but, but if you brought back, you know, a small amount and these were genuine Neptune diamonds, right? I would like that. Let's go to Uranus is what I'm saying. Uh Okay, I might have asked jokes. Let's wrap this up. (laughs) Okay. Big thanks, by the way, to Seth, who tweeted at me the other day. I'm listening to your space weather episode, and you forgot to mention that it rains diamonds on some planets. Come on, cat. (laughs) And I was like, I feel like I have talked about this, but I believe you. And they were like, oh, good, because you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So thanks for that. Seth. Fascinating. I had no idea. I remember when I was a kid in my hometown, the local newspaper was called uh, 
the Holton Pioneer Times. Of course it was. Yeah, and, and it's still it's still operating, um, surprisingly, uh, that any newspaper really is still operating. But, uh, yeah, they're printing it out every day, or every Wednesday is when it, it came out when I was a kid. And they had a section called Discover Holton, and anybody could write a letter in to that, and it could probably it would probably be printed because there's nothing going on there most right. of the time except extreme sadness and poverty. It's a lovely postcard from your hometown. It is a lovely town. I'm just I, it, it's it's lovely. Don't get me wrong, it is. But I remember somebody writing a letter into that column, and it was printed. The letter came from somebody who was claiming that they had started this new organization. It was called the Seventh Planet Organization. And its mission was to explore Uranus. And they printed it and had no idea. You know, it's like somebody at a bar paging Michael Hunt. (laughs) Michael Hunt. Has anybody seen Mike? Hey, the holidays are here. You want a great holiday suggestion for that freak family member you love so much? Check out our merch store. Oh, shameless merch plug. Yeah, we don't talk about it much. Nor do we really do much with it. No. Talk about a ringing endorsement. (laughs) You can buy mugs and T-shirts and things with a Box of Oddity logo on it or some of our other great designs, like Eat a Bag of Dicks. That's a popular one. <laughs> it is. You can find the merch link on our website, theboxofoddities.com. That's theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. (coughs) Okay. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.